Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1048. you're a guest with us, we're working through uh, the gospel of Matthew. We've come to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23 this morning. It is probably a familiar passage to most of us, uh, but it's important to remember that those passages that are often most familiar to us are the ones that we tend to overlook. And so I want to encourage you this morning to keep your Bible open and pay close attention to what Jesus will teach us through this passage. Matthew chapter 19, we'll begin reading in verse 23, and this is what the Word of God says. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In teaching a stone to talk, Annie Dillard recalls the tragic story of the Franklin expedition to the North Pole. She chronicles that in 1845, a group of English explorers died because they were ill-prepared for the challenges they would face. Instead of providing room on board their two ships for storing additional coal for the steam engines, these careless adventurers used the space for a large library, a barrel organ, china place settings, and fancy glass wine goblets. And when they ran out of coal, their books and teacups and musical instruments were not enough to warm their freezing bodies. And all 128 members of the expedition died. Years later, when the search party found the remains of the men who had set off to walk for help, they discovered one skeleton dressed in a fine blue cloth uniform edged with silk braid all around it, grasping in his hands a place setting of sterling silver flatware. It was a striking picture of their deadly foolishness. 
the rich young ruler that approached Jesus acted as foolishly as the dead British explorer. But instead of trying to carry sterling silver through the frozen Arctic, this man was trying to carry all of his possessions through the narrow entrance to the kingdom of God. And just as those explorers needed to make sure their ships had more coal and fewer luxuries, so too this rich man needed to remove the burden of his possessions from his life and soul and come to Jesus in humility and dependence like a child. This rich young ruler came to Jesus seeking eternal life, but his self-centeredness and his self-righteousness stood in the way of him obtaining it. He would not recognize his need for repentance and his need for Christ's forgiveness, nor would he submit to Christ's lordship. And though he sincerely desired eternal life, he wanted his riches and his self-righteousness more. And his sorrowful life is a powerful reminder to all of us that if we want anything more than Christ, we will automatically forfeit Christ. In this passage of Scripture before us this morning, Jesus elaborates on his encounter with the rich young ruler, and he uses unforgettable imagery to teach his disciples and us the impossibility of anyone earning their way into the kingdom of heaven. So would you note with me, first of all, in verses 23 and 24, the problem of entering the kingdom. Matthew records, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew says in verse 22 that when the young man heard Jesus' commands to sell his possessions and to give all of his proceeds to the poor and to come and to follow him, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then in verse 23, as the young man left, Matthew records that Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and he used this encounter with the rich young ruler to teach them a lesson about the nature of his kingdom. And you'll notice in verse 23 how he begins his words. Truly I say to you. And he will use this phrase a second time in this passage. It is a common Jewish figure of speech used to teach something of great importance or to introduce something of great importance. And it carries with it the idea of pay special attention to what I'm about to say. And so what Jesus said to his disciples, the Bible says to us, pay attention to what Jesus is about to say. And what does he say to them? Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the emphasis in Jesus' statement is on the word difficulty. 
Both Mark and Luke, in their parallel accounts of this passage, use this word to describe the problem that the rich young ruler whose heart was consumed with riches had in entering the kingdom of heaven. He had a problem concerning his salvation. Matthew says, Mark says, Luke says, it was a difficulty. And it makes sense because in his conclusion to his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasized that it was difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, this is what Jesus said. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. The way is difficult that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now to be clear, Jesus is not saying that wealthy people will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But he is saying it will be difficult for them. And it begs the question of the text, right? Why will it be difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, the answer is found in Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. In that encounter, Jesus reveals the dark side of possessions and wealth and materialism and riches. He shows us how it has the propensity to make us selfish, to make us materialistic, to make us distracted with retaining our possessions and our wealth and keeping them up or even gaining more riches and possessions and wealth. And that's Jesus's point. That's why it's difficult for those who have a tremendous amount of earthly resources to humble themselves, to admit their need, and to live in childlike dependence upon God. And you may be thinking, just as you were thinking last week if you were here, oh, pastor, this is great. I've got it covered. I am not rich. Well, let me help you with that. Compared to the rest of the world, the poorest among us are rich. We're wealthy. And so this passage does have something to say to you. So if you thought you were going to just zone out, that you knew everything that this passage had to say, wrong. It is speaking to you. And Jesus' point about the rich young ruler and the dangers and the dark side of wealth and possessions and materialism is the exact same point that he made in his rebuke to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Listen to his words to this church beginning in Revelation 3 verse 15. He says to them, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. And so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now listen to verse 17 in his indictment of this church. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. What an indictment on that church and on their souls. And the same could be said of us. 
That God has blessed us. God has given us so many things. We've prospered. We feel we need nothing. And at the end of the day, we don't realize how poor and wretched and blind and naked spiritually we really are. We have a wrong assessment of our standing before God. Jesus made a similar point in the parable of the rich fool. And in this parable, Jesus described a man who was blessed in wealth and his business was going so good that he was accumulating more and more and he was running out of space to put all of his possessions and all of his wealth. And the whole time this was going on in his life, he was unaware of the true condition and need of his soul. And at the end of this parable, this is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 18 to 21. Jesus says, the man said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus called this man a fool. By worldly standards, he had everything a person could want and more. And yet, he did not know the true condition of his soul. What a tragedy. That his soul would be demanded of him by God. And by the way, friends, that's how death works. It is demanded of you by God. God is sovereign over your life. He's numbered your days before you ever breathe the first one. Death and life are in the power of his hands. And there there is coming a day when your soul will be demanded of you. And what a tragedy. If you don't realize the need and the condition of your soul for Christ on that day, it'll be too late. In the parable of the sower, Jesus illustrated the effects that worldly concerns and treasures have on the word of God in our lives. And in Matthew 13, 22, Jesus said this, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, And it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world. The cares of life. The deceitfulness of riches and possessions and status. Choke out the word of God. Choke out the spiritual life of our souls. And we become unfruitful. Jesus also repeatedly taught that following him requires a willingness to sacrifice everything a person has. All of your material possessions everything that you personally own. It it requires a social sacrifice. It requires a relational sacrifice. It requires a sacrifice on every part of your life. A surrender completely to Christ. And this is how he described it in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do you you hear what he's saying? More than him. More than him. The passage is repeated. Do you love this more than me? Do you love this more than me? Do you love this more than me? And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you love something more than Christ? Then you are not worthy of Christ. That's the point. And this is the problem of entering the kingdom of heaven. This is why Jesus said to his disciples and why he says to you and me, it is difficult, it is hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because everyone wants the assurance that they know that they're going to heaven when they die, but not everyone wants Christ. And not everyone is willing to surrender whatever it takes, whatever it costs to have Christ and to follow Christ and to serve Christ and to worship Christ. And that's why it's hard. And that's why it's difficult. J.C. Ryle, speaking of this passage in Matthew chapter 19, said this, Few of our Lord's sayings sound more startling than this. Few run more counter to the opinions and prejudices of mankind. Few are so little believed. And yet this saying is true and worthy of all acceptation. Few sayings like this are believed, he says. And friends, we're living in a day of easy believism. That you can just pray a prayer. You can just walk an aisle. You can just have an emotional experience. Whatever that is. And you're good and you're right with God. And there be no life change. No surrender. No sacrifice. No love of Christ and the things that Christ loves in your life. But because you prayed a prayer, because you walked an aisle, because you became a member of a church, you're good and your soul is good. And you don't really believe what this passage is saying. That it's difficult and it's hard. And that it costs to belong to Christ. In verse 24, Jesus uses hyperbole. To reiterate the difficulty a rich person has in trying to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now look at the text. He uses the largest familiar animal to them, a camel. And the smallest familiar opening to them, an eye of a needle. To illustrate the impossibility of anyone earning their way into the kingdom. And he says in verse 24, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me be clear this morning. Students and scholars of this text have developed many forced conclusions to explain Jesus's point. For instance, some have suggested that there was a small gate in the ancient wall of Jerusalem called the needle's eye. And for a camel to go through that gate, uh, all of the goods on the camel would have to be unloaded and the camel would have to get on its knees and it would have to crawl through the entrance only for the owner of the camel to load all those goods back up on the camel and keep going. And the problem is that nowhere is the word gate used in this text. Another problem is that in archaeological and historical records, there is no mention of the needle's eye gate. And if we could just talk logically for a moment, 
Which would make more sense to you? Unloading your camel only to load it all back up again when you could just walk a few hundred yards down the wall and go through a larger gate. Other scholars have suggested that a scribal error took place because the Greek word for large rope and the Greek word for camel are very close in nature that scribes mistransposed these words. And that it should really read, it is easier for a large rope to go through the eye of a needle. Now, can we just stop there? Could a large rope go through the eye of a needle? Isn't that just as difficult to believe as a camel? We would also have to believe that every scribe who translated from the original manuscript made the same translation error in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke because all three places use the same word. Here's the point. To suggest that Jesus is referring to a rope instead of a camel or to suggest that Jesus is referring to a small gate and a wall instead of a needle's eye weakens the whole point that Jesus is making, which is this. It is impossible for a rich man, for a self-righteous man, for a self-centered man, just like the one Jesus encountered to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? No, it's impossible. And it's impossible for someone who's depending upon themselves to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not just difficult. It's impossible. In Mark's parallel count, Jesus makes clear that this impossibility of entering the kingdom of heaven, listen carefully to me, by any humanly devised or empowered means, listen, it extends to everyone. Mark moves from where Matthew left off saying that it's impossible for this rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Mark records that Jesus says it's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven by their own power. And this is what he writes in Mark chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He's speaking of everyone. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. This rich young ruler's problem was not his wealth. It was his trust in his wealth. It was his trust in his own ability to meet God's standards of holiness and righteousness and perfection and acceptance. This man wanted to enter the kingdom of God and receive eternal life on his own terms, through his own money, by his own efforts. And Jesus said, it is so hard for anyone to get saved on his own terms and by his own merits and by his own efforts. It is so hard that it is utterly impossible. That's the point. Utterly impossible to gain eternal life on your own. In a poignant illustration, the prophet Jeremiah emphasizes the impossibility of salvation by human effort, saying this in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin 
or the leopard his spots, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah's point was, if you can change the color of your skin and if you can change the spots on a leopard, then you can stop doing evil and start doing good. And you know what his point was? You can't change the spots. You can't change the color of your skin. You can't save yourself. You can't earn salvation. You can't find acceptance with God on your own merits, in your own way, with your own plan. It is impossible. There's a sober warning here. If you are not careful, your prosperity, your pursuits, and your position in this life will lead to your destruction in the life to come. It will lead to your destruction in the life to come. If you are trusting today in anything other than the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf to gain your entrance into heaven, you are trusting in something that will never get you there. You know the verse, friends. You know it. You've heard it. You've heard me quote it. A million times probably. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way exclusive. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. It's exclusive. It's narrow. It's hard. It's difficult. It's impossible to do on your own. It is impossible to do with religion. It is impossible to do with just trusting in a prayer that has never led to life change. It is impossible to do just because you have your name on a church membership role. Anything other than Jesus is impossible. So we not only see the problem of entering the kingdom, secondly, we see the possibility of entering the kingdom in verses 25 and 26. And this is what Matthew records. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew tells us that the disciples were greatly astonished at what they heard from Jesus. Mark, in his account, says that the disciples were exceedingly astonished. Greatly astonished. Exceedingly astonished. And it begs a second question of the text. Why were they astonished? Well, the disciples were sitting there listening to Jesus talk, and they expected Jesus to say, it is difficult for a poor person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But instead, they heard Jesus say, it is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they were shocked. They were shocked at the words that came out of Jesus' mouth. It was a foreign concept to them. The idea that it was difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven made no sense in the religious culture and social culture of that day. 
Because most Jews believed that if they obeyed the law sincerely and carefully, it would lead to material blessings. And that if they saw someone who was blessed by God with such material resources as this rich young ruler, then that meant that he was a righteous person. He was a good person. He was keeping the law. He was obeying God, and God, in turn, was blessing him for it. And then they went further in their thinking and said, if, if a person like that was viewed as righteous and received earthly blessings, how much more would they be viewed righteous in the kingdom to come and eternal blessings? And so it was foreign to them to hear Jesus say, that this rich man who, by all appearances, was blessed by God, would find it difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what the text shows us, friends, is that Jesus destroyed their assumptions. And he also destroyed the idea that anyone can earn enough divine favor on their own to gain entrance into heaven. Here was a rich young ruler a man of influence, a man who came asking a good question, what must I do to have eternal life, but who left sad and separated from God? And notice what the text doesn't tell us. Nowhere does Matthew record that Jesus ran after this man and tried to stop him and reduce the demands of entrance into the kingdom for him and make it easier for him to come and follow him. Nor does the text say anywhere that Jesus allowed this man to pick and choose what he would believe and what he would follow and what he would obey. The text says the exact opposite. Jesus let him go his own way. Jesus let him suffer the consequences of his deluded thinking and his love of self and his love of possessions and resources. Jesus didn't beg him. Jesus didn't lower his standards for the kingdom. Jesus didn't make him think he was doing Jesus a favor by following him. Jesus did not reduce the demands of holiness. He let him go. Friends, it's not like a fast food restaurant where you can have it your way. You must follow Jesus' demands, or you don't come. It's really that simple. And in their astonishment, the disciples asked Jesus, do you see it? Who then can be saved? Jesus, if this is how entrance into your kingdom works, who among us can be saved? And in verse 26, Matthew tells us that Jesus looked at the astonished disciples, and he answered their question. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. What is impossible with man? Salvation. What is impossible with man? Entrance into the kingdom of heaven. What is impossible with man? Eternal life. And this is the answer to the rich young ruler's question that he asked back in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16 that got this whole conversation started. Good teacher, what works must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus finally answers the question. 
with man, it's impossible. You can't have eternal life. But with God, all things are possible. So listen to me, friend. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've accomplished, no matter what you own, without a relationship with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as both your Lord and your Savior, you stand today in the presence of a holy God who created you, helpless and powerless to change your condition, and you stand condemned before His holiness and righteousness. And there's not a single thing you can do to clean yourself up and make you more acceptable to God. There is not a single thing that you can do to make yourself worthy of God's mercy, God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness, God's acceptance, God's salvation. There's not a thing you can do to get any of that. With you, it is impossible. Utterly impossible for a religious person, for a rich person, for a good person, for an earnest person, or for anyone else for that matter to be saved themselves. Nobody can earn it. And some of us have been raised in a religion, a religion that is based on works, a religion that tells you to do, 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 and the more you do, 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 that'll make you more acceptable to God. And then even when you die in that religion, you can't have 100% confidence that you're going to go to heaven. You may end up in purgatory or somewhere else. And that is man's view of entering the kingdom. And this is Jesus' view of entering the kingdom. And which would you rather have? Man's view that wears you out and in the end leaves you empty with no confidence? Or Jesus' view that absolutely crushes you to the very core of your soul so that all you can do is crawl to Him in humility and dependence like a child and rise up from the ground with complete confidence that you are loved and accepted and forgiven by God. Notice the text. What is impossible for man is possible with God. In fact, Jesus says all things are possible for God. Job discovered this truth at the end of his suffering, and in Job 42, 2, he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is Jesus' point, friends. God can do what man cannot do. God can do the seemingly impossible. God can save you through his son, Jesus Christ. God can give you eternal life. And so, listen, if it is impossible with man and it is possible with God, that means salvation and eternal life must come from outside of us. And this is the point. And that's why Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You can't come to Christ unless God the Father draws you to Christ. 
You say, well, how do I know I'm being drawn to Christ? Well, you're listening to these words of Scripture. And you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing yourself and you're seeing. This passage is describing me. I've placed my faith and my confidence and my hope in eternal life and salvation in something other than Christ. In a religion, in works, in a prayer, in church membership. You name it. This is me and the mirror is showing me. I've been deceived. All this time I've been deceived in my life. I've not been told the truth. And now I'm seeing the truth for the very first time. I want Christ. That's how you know He's drawing you. You want Christ. You don't want to stay the way the mirror has shown you. You want to be different. You want to be changed. You want Christ. You love Christ because He first loved you. You love Christ because you realize what He's done for you. And you will give anything to have Christ. That's the Father drawing you. In that same passage in John 6, 63, Jesus said this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's no help at all. You can't do it on your own. You can't. It's the Spirit that gives you life. You say, well, how does the Spirit give me life? Well, Jesus said in John 3, it blows like the wind. And you can't see the wind, but you feel the effects of the wind. And so it is with those who are born of the Spirit of God. And the Father is drawing you and you're saying, I want Christ. I want Christ. I'm not a Christian. I don't have eternal life. I don't know where I'll go when I die. I want Jesus. I've been deceived. And the Holy Spirit of God blows across your life like the wind. He moves through this room in this building at this moment in the preaching of the gospel. And you become different. You become saved. You have eternal life. The old is gone. The new has come. That's how salvation works. Jesus is exalted. The Father draws. And the Spirit gives life. And there is no other way. Please listen to me, church. There is no other way into the kingdom than through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one, true, triune, living God. No other way. And if you're resting on anything other than this glorious triune God, you have a false salvation. When we not only see the problem of entering the kingdom and the possibility of entering the kingdom, finally in verses 27 to 29, we see the promises of entering the kingdom. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It doesn't surprise you what takes place in verse 27, does it? Peter is the first one to speak, as usual. And he speaks representing all of the disciples, and he responds to Jesus' teaching in verse 27, and he says, See? See, Jesus, we're not like the rich young ruler. We've left everything and followed you. We're not like him. And then notice this question. So what are we going to get out of this deal? 
What will we have? It sounds just like Peter, doesn't it? He was saying, we came on your terms, didn't we? Don't we qualify for eternal life? The rich young ruler refused to surrender his possessions and his life to you, and he forfeited the kingdom. But Jesus, look at us. We've forfeited our jobs, our families, our friends, and everything else we had in order to be your disciples. We've repented of our sins. We've surrendered to your lordship just as you've commanded. We've denied ourselves. We've taken up our crosses, and we've followed you. Aren't we in? Don't we have a place in the kingdom? And notice the text from verse 27 into verse 28. Jesus never rebukes Peter for his words. He never shows displeasure with Peter's question. And in verses 28 and 29, he responds to Peter's question by addressing all of the disciples, reminding them of the promises of his kingdom. Now, I want you to see carefully what happens in these last two verses. Jesus gives a twofold response. In verse 28, he responds to the disciples. And then in verse 29, he responds to everyone else that has or will follow him. That's you and me. So first, in verse 28, to the disciples, Jesus said, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have, who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is all prophetic language that Jesus is using in verse 28. When he mentions the new world, it literally means new birth. It was used by the historian Josephus for the new birth of the Jewish nation after the Babylonian captivity. It was used by Philo to describe the new birth of the earth after the flood. It's only used one other time in the New Testament in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Titus uses, it is used in Titus by Paul to describe the personal new birth of believers when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. But in this passage, Jesus is using it to represent the rebirth of the earth under his sovereign rule and reign at his second coming. Isaiah 65, 17 and Isaiah 66, 2 prophesy that the Messiah would renew the heavens and the earth. And in Acts chapter 3 and verse 21 in one of Peter's sermons, he described this renewal as the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the holy prophets long ago. And in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 15, John sees a vision of the beginning of this renewal and rebirth when Jesus will establish his earthly kingdom and his millennial reign. And John describes what was long predicted by God that the Messiah would receive the nations as his inheritance and that he would rule and reign over them. And Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7, which Jesus refers to in verse 28, that the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And Daniel goes on to say that at that time, all of the redeemed of all of the ages will sit with Christ on his throne, ruling and reigning. And Daniel describes it this way, in the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And the nation of Israel will be restored. And as Jesus says in verse 28, 
The 12 disciples, the 11 minus Judas plus Matthias who replaced him, will sit and rule and judge the nation of Israel. And Christ will reign. And things will change. It'll be a reversal and a renewal. He will be sovereign. He will bring righteousness and peace and immediate justice. He will be worshipped as supreme Lord. And his kingdom will bring prosperity and healing and health. And Jesus says, Peter, the other disciples, this is what you can expect. I will come again. And I will reign over everyone and everything. And you will be right there with me because you surrendered and you knew the cost of following me. Now look in verse 29. After he addresses the disciples, he addresses everyone else that has or will follow him. That is us. And this is what he says. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is addressing in verse 29 directly the cost of following him, pointing to everyone who has experienced loss for their faith and for their devotion to him. And he promises that they will receive an inheritance. Now, notice in the text carefully what Jesus says. Jesus emphasizes the motivation for their loss and their sacrifice. They experience loss and sacrifice, Matthew says, for Jesus' namesake. They didn't capitulate in their faith and their allegiance and their surrender and their devotion to Christ. And because they wouldn't surrender, because they stayed true to Christ, for Christ's namesake, they experienced loss and suffering. Mark describes it this way. He adds the motivation that they suffered for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message that I'm proclaiming to you this morning. The exclusivity of Jesus being the only way. The only mediator between God and man. And Luke says... That they didn't just suffer for Christ's namesake. They didn't just suffer for the sake of the gospel message. They suffered for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's the motivation for suffering and loss. And here's Jesus' point. When you're sold out to Christ, when you're sold out for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're sold out for the kingdom of heaven, it will cost you. When you come to Christ, you surrender to him, and your allegiance is with him, it may cost you relationships. It may cost you relationships that are important to you. It may cost you your relationship, Jesus says, with your parents. It may cost you your relationship with your siblings. It may cost you your relationship with your cousins, with your aunts, with your uncles, with your grandparents. It may cost you significant relationships in your life. Your family may turn against you. You may lose the family inheritance. You may lose your friends. You may have to start all over in your personal relationships because of your allegiance to Christ and your refusal to compromise. It may cost you your spouse. It may cost you your job. It may cost you your freedom. It may cost you your very life. 
Now look at the text. But Jesus says that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands will experience the blessings of God both now and in eternity. Church, this is an important verse. We are living in a time where the reality and the implication of this verse is not hard to imagine. And as your pastor, I want to put steel in your spine. There may be a day that you come to worship and one of the other elders stands up and says, pray for our pastor and his family today. He's in prison because he wouldn't compromise the preaching of the true definition of marriage. Because he wouldn't compromise the preaching of the true way of salvation. And if that ever, ever happens, I hope there's a line of men with steel in their spines and a Bible in their hands to stand up behind this sacred desk and preach the same message. Because you deserve it and you need it. You may be told one day at work that you either have to compromise in your belief and how you're living or you no longer have a job. And I would say to you, friends, on that day, would you see the treasures and the worth and the inheritance of Christ greater than that job? Because if you don't think about that now, if you don't prepare for that now, you will capitulate then. You will. Steel in your spine. Why? Because this world is not our home. This world is not the final resting place. We are pilgrims passing through, going on to a better land. Oh, but if you think this is the best that there is, oh, then you'd be willing. You'd be willing to compromise Christ. You'd be willing to walk away sad like the rich, young ruler. And have you ever considered, church, that if you lose your relationships in this life that are closest to you, when you come to Christ, you gain a whole new family. You gain all kinds of fathers, all kinds of mothers, all kinds of brothers, all kinds of sisters in Christ. And if you don't set your thinking in a biblical manner, if you don't view that what you lose, you gain, you'll miss the very blessing of God that He has for you in this life. And some of you are already missing it now. You're missing out on the fellowship and the communion of spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in Christ. You slip in and out. You slip in and out. You slip in and out. We're a family. A family's built on relationships. God's given you relationships to build a family. Why? Because He knows you may lose your earthly family. You don't just receive a family when you come to the kingdom. You receive hope. You receive joy. You receive peace. You receive love. You receive freedom. You receive strength. You receive power. You receive wisdom. You receive security and look at the text this is not my word this is Jesus's word when you give up everything for Christ you receive a hundredfold have you looked at your retirement account lately is it yielding a hundred percent 
Jesus says, his does, you'll receive a hundredfold and you'll inherit eternal life. And I want to say to you today, lonely student, in the walls of your school, where it's not popular to be and to identify the exact way that God created you and designed you, that you're doing it anyway and you feel alone and you feel like the weight of being right with God is so heavy on your shoulders, Christ sees you. And the persecution and the ridicule that you experience in your school, he'll reward a hundredfold. Stay true to Christ. Stay true to your faith. Stay true to the way he created you and made you. Own it. Live in it with confidence. There's a better life coming. I want to say to you today, brokenhearted spouse, you try and try, you pray and pray, and your spouse just won't come to church with you. They don't want anything to do with the things of God. Christ sees you. He'll reward your faithfulness. He'll reward your endurance and your perseverance a hundredfold. And you'll inherit eternal life. Don't stop praying. Don't stop serving. Don't stop loving Christ. I want to say to you today who are isolated from your family and friends because of your faith in Christ, do you believe this text? Do you believe that Jesus sees and that Jesus will reward a hundredfold? Do you believe it? He's assuring you today. He's promising you that whatever cost you pay, whatever suffering you experience, whatever loss, in the end, you will gain. This was Paul's testimony. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Did you, did you hear, Paul? You can't even imagine how good it's going to be. That's my translation. You can't even imagine. Oh, you can think about it. You can ponder it. You can try to picture it. But you can't even imagine how good it's going to be. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Look around you, church. Look around you. This is transient. Transient. There's something better. Eternal. I end with three quotes. Warren Wiersbe said of this last passage in Jesus' encouragement to his disciples and you and me. This is his commentary on it. They were not making sacrifices. They were making investments. That's it. You live this life for Christ. You're making an investment in the life to come. Spurgeon. I knew you were missing Spurgeon. It's been a while. He said, oh, that we may never hesitate to be glad losers for Jesus. Like, put that on a t-shirt. Never hesitate to be a glad loser for Jesus. They who lose all for Christ will find all in Christ and receive all with Christ.
Never hesitate to lose for Jesus. And you've heard this one from the missionary Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You're not a fool if you do that. You're a fool if you live for this life and not the life to come. And I want to say to you today, dear Christian, pray that God would put steel in your spine. Pray that he would give you a courage and a conviction and a boldness that would never wane until you're in glory. Even if you're the only one. And I want to say to you today, non-Christian, lift your eyes. Look to Jesus. He's shown you through this text how to come into the kingdom. He is the only way. Turn from your sin and ask Christ to save you today. Let's pray.